The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 22, verses 1 through 29. So I'll be reading a selection of the verses from that passage. It says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that, I'm, that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated the, at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with him saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by him and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, giving joy to the heart. And your commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes, we're told in Psalm 19. And so, Lord, please, as we dig into your word this morning. Uh, we pray that you would 
revive our souls. Give wisdom to our minds. Impart joy to our hearts. And enlighten our eyes. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There's something uniquely powerful about a good story. You know, stories have a way of drawing us in and speaking to our hearts and really making an impact on us. I remember one time going to uh, see uh, the movie, this was back in college, I guess, the movie Marley and Me, and it told a story about this couple named John and Jenny, and of course their dog, Marley. And it followed them from when John and Jenny were newlyweds and then onward after that. It had them moving down to Florida and starting out in their entry-level jobs and then getting Marley and all the crazy behavior issues that that Marley had and just some very over-the-top things. And uh, then John and Jenny had a, a very heartbreaking miscarriage and dealt with that and then would go on to have a total of three kids, and Jenny would become a stay-at-home mom, and it just went through one phase of their life after another and followed them eventually until the the couple was in their 40s and now living not in Florida but in Philadelphia, and their kids are teenagers, and the dog, Marley, who who got sick and uh, briefly recovered but then got sick again and had to be euthanized. And I'll just tell you that I'm not typically the kind of person that would go to, first of all, see a drama movie like that. It's not really my thing. Uh, I think uh, some of my guy friends and I in college were trying to hang out with some girls that we were interested in, you know, for fellowship, of course. And uh, not only am I not typically the, the kind of person that would go to see Marley and me, but I'm definitely not the kind of person that would get emotional during the movie. That's just not who I am. But for some reason, I guess this movie told the story of Marley in such a a moving way (laughs) that at the end of it, when Marley had to be put down, I don't know what happened. It just, it kind of got to me. And somehow, I had tears welling up in my eyes. Like I said, I'm usually more like the Jason Bourne kind of moviegoer. But so I was kind of surprised. I was like, what is happening to me here? But that's how powerful stories can be. And as we think about our main passage this morning in Acts 22, we see the Apostle Paul leveraging the power of story in his address to the crowd at Jerusalem. You may remember from last week, if you were here, that Paul went to Jerusalem in order to visit the Christians there and specifically to deliver to them a love offering that he had collected from various other churches. And in order to demonstrate that he doesn't have anything against the Old Testament law, Paul participates in a purification ritual at the temple and also sponsors four men as they complete another Old Testament ritual called a Nazarite vow. But while Paul's at the temple doing all this, some of his Jewish opponents from Asia are also there, and they recognize him and shout out in front of everyone at the temple some outrageous accusations against Paul. 
about how he's supposedly doing everything he can to undermine the Old Testament law in Jewish communities all around the Roman Empire, and also how he supposedly brought a Gentile into the temple, which would have been a grave offense. And so, in a blind rage, the crowd of people at the temple grabs Paul and starts beating him. Now, fortunately, a garrison of Roman soldiers happens to be nearby and rescues Paul before the mob can beat him to death. Paul then asks permission from the Roman commander called a tribune if he can speak to the crowd. And chapter 22 that we're looking at today records for us what Paul said. Now, let me ask you this. What would you say in that situation? An angry mob has just severely beaten you and is calling out for your execution. And you're now in the hands of governing authorities who have shown a willingness in the past, like with Pontius Pilate, to bow to the will of the crowd. What would you say? I'm guessing you'd say whatever you thought would be most likely to calm everybody down and convince them of your innocence, right? And Paul does indeed make a defense. That's the term he uses in verse 1 to describe his address. And yet his defense seems to be not just a defense, but really more of an evangelistic witness. A very deliberate testimony to this Jewish crowd about Jesus. Now Paul could have simply tried to focus on demonstrating uh, that the charges leveled against him were false. There were plenty of indications of his innocence that he could have pointed to, and that any good defense attorney, I'm sure, would have strongly advised him to bring up. Yet Paul doesn't do that. He approaches things much differently, and instead shares with the crowd the story of his encounter with Jesus. And that's the main idea of this passage. That Paul takes advantage of a unique opportunity to share the story of his encounter with Jesus. Again, Paul takes advantage of a unique opportunity to share the story of his encounter with Jesus. Uh, This situation in which Paul finds himself probably isn't one that most people would view as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. But that's exactly how Paul approaches it. You know, when your heart is captivated by Jesus and with the joy that he brings, you just kind of make your own opportunities to talk about him with others. You find yourself naturally bringing Jesus into your conversations. And in a similar way, Paul decides he's going to use this incredibly intense situation as an opportunity to share with this hostile Jewish crowd the story of his encounter with Jesus, telling them about how Jesus changed his life. And as we walk through the things Paul shares, I encourage you to be on the lookout for three elements in particular that are helpful to share with people whenever we tell them, as a Christian, about our journey to faith. First, what life was like before encountering Jesus, including the ways in which we lived in rebellion against God and experienced various struggles because of that. 
Second, the specific events that led to us encountering Jesus in a real and personal way. And then third, the specific ways in which our life has changed as a result of our encounter with Jesus. So be on the lookout for those three things as we walk through this passage. Let's look first at verses 1 through 3. Paul says to this hostile crowd, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So, Paul begins his defense in a very thoughtful way that's clearly calculated to demonstrate his Jewish credentials. Although Paul had been born in Tarsus, he had been raised right there in Jerusalem and even educated under the feet of Gamaliel, who was by far the most revered rabbi of that day and was even regarded as one of the greatest rabbis in all of antiquity. And so Paul's kind of name-dropping here a little bit, right? He's like, you know, Gamaliel? Yeah, I got him on my phone right here. You want to see? And, of course, at the feet of Gamaliel, Paul would have received rigorous training in both the Old Testament law and uh, various Jewish traditions. In addition, he also states that he was as zealous for God as all of you are this day. And he goes on to describe how that zeal manifested itself in verses 4 and 5. I persecuted this way. Notice the capital W there, referring to Christianity. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And so Paul's zeal for the law and for his Jewish heritage was so great that he devoted his life to persecuting Christians. He even went above and beyond the call of duty by persecuting Christians not only in Jerusalem, but even in other cities in the region. And in case anyone should doubt that, Paul says that they can just ask the high priest and the council of elders. They can confirm that he was indeed as zealous as he says he was. Yet as Paul was traveling on the road to Damascus in order to find and arrest more Christians, he had an experience that forever redefined his life. Look at verses 6 through 8. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And it's here that we see the central component of Paul's testimony. The personal encounter that he had with Jesus. 
And that's the central component, not only of Paul's story of coming to faith, but of any story of someone coming to genuine and saving faith. It all revolves around having an encounter with Jesus that's real and personal and transformative. It's all about seeing him for who he is and having that encounter. And and so let me just ask you this. What about you? Have you ever had that kind of encounter with Jesus? If you have, what did that look like? I know for me, I was all by myself in my room one summer between 8th and ninth grade. And I was reading a series of Christian fiction books called the Left Behind series. Uh, I wasn't really reading this for any spiritual reason or or trying to grow closer to the Lord, but really just because I was a little bit bored as, uh, you know, a teenager between 8th and ninth grade and in a rural area. And yet, as I was reading, I believe it was the second book of the series, something happened that I wasn't expecting. God began to speak to me. And uh, since I was brought up in a very Christian home, my parents were were very devoted in their Christian faith, I already had a pretty good intellectual grasp of Christian teaching. But God spoke to me that day in a way that he never had before and helped me to really see the situation I was in. All at once, I saw how my sins had offended a holy God and had made me deserving of God's judgment. So so sin and judgment weren't just these abstract concepts that were floating out there, but they were real now, and, and they were true of me, I saw. And so I responded in only way that made sense to respond. And I put my trust in Jesus to rescue me from that because of what he had done in dying on the cross. I already had the understanding that Jesus had died to pay for my sins, but I now very actively and deliberately put my trust in Jesus for that. And so, that's how I came to faith. I understood that there was nothing I can do to make myself right with God. It doesn't matter. I, I understood how, how much, how devoted my parents were, or how much I attended church, or how much I knew about the Bible. That rescue is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So I had to put my trust in Him to rescue me, not my own efforts. So that's the story of how I came to encounter the Lord that summer at age 14. What's your story? Do you have a story of encountering Jesus in a real and personal and transformative way? If not, I would invite you to put your trust in Jesus this very day. And let today be the day that you look back on for the rest of your life as the day when you encountered the Lord. And then returning to Paul's story here, he continues to describe his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus in verses 9 through 16. Now those who were with me saw the light 
but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul had been blinded, but then receives his sight physically as a picture of what had happened to him spiritually. Prior to encountering Jesus, Paul was spiritually blind to the most important aspects of reality. He assumed, for example, that he was righteous, while in reality he was quite sinful. He assumed that uh, God was pleased with his acts of religious devotion, while in reality God was grieved. He assumed that he was right in his assessment of Jesus, while in reality he was dead wrong. Yet by God's grace, Paul receives his sight. In every way, and is told by Ananias in verse 16 that his sins need to be washed away. Now, this is a verse that's sometimes misunderstood to uh, teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. That we're actually saved from our sins by being baptized. Yet, if we read the verse carefully, we can see that the requirement for salvation isn't being baptized, but rather calling on the name of Jesus. And I says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So even though calling on his name occurs last in the grammatical construction of the sentence, it's nevertheless the foundational element that results in our sins being washed away, which is then subsequently symbolized in the act of baptism. We also find additional and very clear con uh, confirmation that baptism is not necessary for salvation in other biblical passages like Galatians 2.16 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And just as Paul needed to have his sins washed away by calling on the name of Jesus, every one of us has that same need as well. Now, your sins may be very obvious and external, or they may be somewhat less obvious and more internal. It doesn't matter. Uh, you might compare it to our physical bodies. Some sins might be like us having a limb that's been torn off and blood gushing out, while other sins might be like a cancer that's silently eating away at us from the inside. Regardless of what kinds of sins are most prevalent in your life, all sins, all sins are serious and deadly and leave us in desperate 
need of cleansing. And so you might look like a pretty good person on the outside and have been raised in a religious home, perhaps, and and be involved in religious things. It doesn't matter. You still need to be cleansed from your sins. We might even say that in a manner of speaking, like Paul, you need to be saved from your religion. And the good news of the gospel is that you can if you will put your trust in Jesus to rescue you from your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord, as the verse says here. Paul then continues his story and shares what happened after his visit to Ananias, verses 17 through 21. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, that would be Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and then beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And uh, to summarize the subsequent verses, as soon as Paul says the word Gentiles, which refers to people who aren't Jewish, things go downhill immediately. Uh, in today's language, we might say that the Jewish crowd was triggered at the suggestion that, that Paul would reach out to the Gentiles and the idea that Gentiles could be saved. And so as soon as Paul says that, they interrupt him and shout, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Uh, the Roman commander or uh, tribune then brings Paul back into the barracks and orders that he be flogged but then withdraws the order once he discovers Paul is a Roman citizen. Yet again, the main idea I'd like us to focus on from this passage is how Paul took advantage of this unique opportunity to share the story of his encounter with Jesus. And that's a great reminder for those of us who are Christians that sharing our story of coming to know Jesus is one of the most powerful and effective ways of pointing others him. There's something uniquely powerful about a story that really speaks to people's hearts. Also, uh, for people who are more skeptical by nature and who would otherwise try to poke holes in logical arguments for Christianity and find fault with uh, our attempts at, at defending Christianity from an intellectual perspective, it's a lot harder for them to argue with someone's personal experience. Now, they're in no position to say that we didn't experience what we say we've experienced. And so a lot of times, sharing a personal story is a great way to sort of fly above the, the objections that might otherwise be raised against the gospel. And so I've discovered that what's often quite effective is to weave the gospel that is the, the story of Jesus and what he's done to save us, to weave that gospel message into our personal testimony in such a way that our testimony functions as a delivery mechanism of sorts 
for the gospel. You might compare it to the way a missile is used as a delivery mechanism for a warhead. The warhead, of course, is the component uh, where most of the destructive power is located. It's the component that really does the damage. While the missile is what the warhead is attached to so that the missile can carry the warhead where it needs to go. And likewise, a personal testimony is a great way to share the gospel with someone as long as we're deliberate in the course of that testimony to clearly state what we were saved out of our sin and also, of course, how we came to be rescued from that sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we seek to share our salvation testimony, here are some practical pointers uh, that I found to be quite helpful and important. I've put together a very simple list of four of them that I'd like to share with you. So four tips for sharing your story. The first is to speak plainly. Avoid Christian jargon and what's sometimes called Christianese. You know, if you try to tell someone about how you came to grasp your total depravity and came to the understanding that you needed to experience regeneration and have the forensic righteousness of Jesus imputed to you so that you could be justified by the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, most people are probably not going to understand what you're saying, right? In fact, I would even recommend that you not assume people even understand words like sin and righteousness and salvation without you clearly defining those terms. Speak plainly so that people can understand what you're saying. Second, be honest about your sins. Although you may not want to disclose every nitty-gritty detail about the sins you committed before becoming a Christian, it's helpful to share at least the general contours of your sins so that people can have some understanding of what God saved you out of. You want to give people a three-dimensional understanding of God's grace. You can say that God was gracious in rescuing you from your sins, and that's good. But that general statement by itself is kind of two-dimensional. In order to give people a three-dimensional understanding of God's grace and help them see it in a more powerful way, it's necessary to give them at least some idea of how God's grace has been shown to you in the midst of your specific sins and struggles. Then third, it's critical that you keep Jesus at the center of your story as well. Looking at Acts 22, it's very apparent that Paul wasn't at all impressed with himself as he tells this story. Instead, the story revolves around Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. And so make sure you tell your story in a manner that makes it very clear that the hero isn't you or even the person who led you to faith, but rather the hero is Jesus. The point of everything we say should be to exalt Jesus and give the glory to him. 
And then finally, consider writing out your story. This obviously isn't a requirement, but it can certainly be helpful. Many of the people we've baptized in our church have told me that writing out their salvation testimony in preparation for their baptism actually helped them come to a clearer understanding of what happened to them and what the Lord was doing in their life. There's just something about putting out or putting down our experiences on paper that helps us mentally process those experiences and gain additional insight. And of course, it's not like we're reading from the paper as we're actually talking with someone, but writing things down nevertheless uh, is very helpful in preparing us to have those natural and spontaneous conversations. And by the way, if anyone would like uh, a copy of some of the, the baptism testimonies that we've had in our church so that you could use that as a model or template of sorts as you seek to write your own, then uh, I would be very glad to send you uh, some of those. Just reach out to me, and I can do that for you. And uh, I do encourage you, in light of all of this, to think about where you can share your story, even this week. I believe we can confidently say that God wants you to share your story. Just like Paul shares his in Acts 22. He's going to do it again a few chapters later. God gets glory when we share with others about what he's done for us. So where can you do that this week? Maybe it's in the break room at your workplace. Or when you're out to lunch with a colleague. Or even when you're making a sales call to a prospective customer. Or when you're in a weekly mom's playgroup. Or when you see your neighbor doing yard work at the same time you are. Or when you're sitting in a waiting room at the doctor's office. Or when you're waiting at the bus stop or trolley stop. Or when you're at a local coffee shop doing some leisurely reading. Or when you're at your child's sporting event alongside other parents. Or when you're picking up your car from the mechanic. Guys, you see, there are countless opportunities (laughs) throughout the course of any given week, for us to share our story. So how faithful will those of us who are Christians be in taking advantage of those opportunities? And let's not forget that sharing our salvation story with others is also a powerful reminder to us of the incredible grace God has shown us in rescuing us from our sins. If you've been a Christian for a decent amount of time, then you know as well as I do that uh, for whatever reason, we kind of tend to forget about what we've been saved out of. You know, it's like we leak. And so we need regular reminders of the grace God has shown to us and all that he's done for us. Well, sharing our testimony gives us that reminder. And lastly, if Acts 22 teaches us anything, It teaches us that regardless of what someone's done in their life or what sins they've committed or what messes they've made or what people they've hurt, there is forgiveness to be found in Jesus. 
You know, that's one thing that seems to be rather conspicuously missing in our society right now, especially among those who like to view themselves as, I don't know, more enlightened than others. Once anyone transgresses their standards, there is no forgiveness. There is no redemption. You're done. And yet with Jesus, anyone can be forgiven if they'll turn from their sin. The Apostle Paul is exhibit A of that. Because you guys know Paul did, he, he shared it. Paul did some terrible things before encountering Jesus. But Jesus' blood shed on the cross covered every single one of those sins. Friends, you can't out-sin God's grace. It's infinite. In addition, Paul was not only forgiven, but also changed from Christianity's most well-known persecutor into its foremost proponent. So not only did Jesus forgive Paul, he also changed Paul. And if Jesus can change Paul, then he can also change you in the most incredible 